Perhaps I was talking when I should have been listening. No matter what happens, you've got to hang on. Johnny, relax. Now you give him everything he wants, you understand? Now let's see what happens when we mix these two elements together. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, you are now listening to the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. Welcome back to the Relentless College Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, I have Natasha Miller on, and we're going to be talking about Relentless. She's coming out with a book called Relentless, and her whole journey that is very unique and very inspiring. And first and foremost, Natasha, thank you for coming on the podcast. And could you give a brief background to the audience about yourself? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me and the brief background is that I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. I'm a classically trained violinist and a jazz vocalist with seven CDs out. I accidentally became an entrepreneur. I have a profitable multi-million dollar uh, event and entertainment production company called Entire Productions based in San Francisco. And I am coming out with this new book, Relentless Homeless Teen to Achieving the Entrepreneur Dream. That's that's awesome. And I was looking at your LinkedIn and I saw like all these, the background of yourself. And I was like, what? She's into jazz. She's into all this different stuff. Like that, that's just completely awesome. And now talking about your book a little bit, Relentless, what do you think it means to you to be relentless? What I think it means is that it's not enough for you to be resilient, which is a word that's really used a lot these days. Um, in referring to people that are having hard times, challenging times, which if you're a human being, that is going to happen, period, end of story. So it's not just being able to bounce back up, but it's being able to have tunnel vision, laser vision, laser, laser focus in being relentless, not giving up when you're going for the things that you want to achieve, succeed at, enjoy. Yeah. Awesome answer. I love that. Um, And the title of your book is super intriguing. And people are like, okay, she was homeless. And now she owns a super successful company. So how has been like being homeless shaped you for who you are today? So I did live in a homeless shelter for some time when I was 16. But it was actually saying homeless teen to achieving the entrepreneur dream was actually a safer subtitle and a safer way of describing what happened to me. So I was actually really abandoned by my family on Christmas night when I was 16 to a youth homeless shelter. And I've been on my own since then. So when you frame it from that way, we weren't just, I wasn't just homeless because of lack of funds or lack of the, some of the things that creates a homelessness, right? So it's a little bit of a, a, a mysterious, you know, turn of phrase to say homeless. What I experienced, I think was worse than just having to deal with homelessness. And what happened was that I had this fuel inside of me, this fire that I was just catapulted into everything that I wanted to do, achieve, succeed at, to prove to everyone who let me down, who didn't come to save me, who didn't take care of me, all the basic needs in life, 
I wanted to prove that I was worthy of that attention and of that love. And um, I could have gone lots of different directions. I think of a lot of people that suffer from similar situations may turn to drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or, you know, a lot of things that are negative or, 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 you know, over, maybe they'll work out a lot or, you know, anything that's over what I chose, which wasn't, I didn't make the decision between one or the other. I was just laser focused on having a music career of performing. And that was my drug. So that's what led me through. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you for sharing that, by the way. I know it's not always easy. Uh, I know writing a book about it probably wasn't that easy, but no. the what you've overcome is one to reckon with. And it just goes to show you you're capable of anything you put your mind to. And with what you just said, when you said you were proving to people, do you think in the midst of that, really, you were trying to prove to yourself that you're worthy? I was really just trying to get attention and love and Mm -hmm. support and comfort. Um, Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't dis, I don't push that away, but more than anything, I was trying to prove to the outside world that I was worth valuing because I wasn't being valued. Yep. So I think I must have seen some value in myself if that was yeah. what I was trying to achieve. 100%. If you could go back in time and talk to your younger self when uh, the day before Christmas, what advice would you give to yourself in that moment? Hmm. My advice would be not to challenge my mother um, like a therapist had suggested not to stand up for myself. Now, I know that sounds really weak and and lame, but my mother came after me with a butcher knife. So uh, that was, that advice I got from the therapist was actually putting me in danger. And the advice I would give to myself in general is that no one is coming to save you, but you have it completely within yourself to save yourself. There's no way that you know, I didn't have the maturity or the experience at 16 to know that. Yeah, that makes sense. Wow. That's awesome. And amongst this, your story and your journey uh, throughout your life, like I can see why you'd write the book, but I'm curious to hear your specifics on what made you finally write this book and then publish it. In 2018, I was at a conference Uh, a mentorship conference. So a lot of entrepreneurs that did seven and eight figure businesses and nine were there to mentor each other, which was really cool concept. And I sat down with one gal who was a published author. And I did not come to this conference to think about writing a book. I came to this conference to scale and grow, learn to scale and grow my business more. But I came out of that conference knowing for sure that it was time for me to write the story of my life. And I think the ironies that occur in the whole theme of my life and the, are you kidding me? That happened. And then she went on to do this. I realized that it was an intriguing and interesting and even entertaining story, even though some of it's pretty dark. Mm -hmm. 
But what I didn't realize when I started writing it, and even when I was coming up with a publishing plan, how impactful the book could be to other people, to the people reading it, and what kind of a mark I could make in the, on this world by being so vulnerable and telling my story so that people could see themselves in it and then see the bravery, if you will, of me stepping forward and saying, these are the things that happened to me. This is how I overcame it. This is where I landed. Yeah. And what I'm hearing from people having read the book is that it is inspirational and it is motivational. I am not an inspirational or motivational speaker, right? Mm -hmm. I'm a, I'm a realist. And um, the book is written really beautifully. I wrote maybe 50, 60, 70,000 words and then co-wrote with an editor after I did all that to really mold and shape and sculpt the story. And it reads like fiction. So it does take you on this ride. It doesn't sound like a normal memoir, like a report or an essay on mm -hmm. the things that happened to my life. It is shaded with color and dynamics and suspense. So I'm really proud of it. I'm really happy with how it came out. That's awesome to hear. And uh, we were talking about it before we started recording, but you got your first hundred books. Mm -hmm. So when are you planning on like full on releasing it? Yeah, we're in launch mode right now. It publishes on March 22nd but it's for pre-sale online now. And we have an advanced reader program and an influencer program happening now to get people reading the book in advance so that they can put verified reviews on Amazon so that Amazon can show proof of you know, um, authority. And then mm -hmm. that authority raises the algorithm. It all works together. Gotcha. So you're ahead of the game. You're you're already pre-planning for it to be launched and have people oh, yeah. reading it. That's awesome. So when writing this book, because you were talking about how you wrote the beginning part and then you uh, co-wrote it a bit. And then so you there was a, it sounds like a long and tedious process. So what was one of the most challenging parts in writing the book itself? The challenging part was not understanding the skill and the talent that you need to turn an essay or a reporting of your life into beautiful prose. And mm. beautiful prose was very important to me. I'm a fairly good writer. I'm a good copywriter. I'm a good songwriter. Um, but writing fiction is not a, a, a talent that I have. And not that we're fictionalizing anything, but we're creating um, an experience and a story for people. I want people to be immersed in it. What I love when I'm hearing back from people was I can't, I couldn't put it down. I tried, I read the first sentence and then I had read the first paragraph. I read the first chapter, like I couldn't stop. And that's what I want to hear. And that is due to the writing, to that craft that my co-writer Jamie helped me with. Wow. Yeah. How long from when did you real when did you uh, start writing? I'm curious to hear about the time period that it yeah. took. April of 2018 is when I had that aha moment and started writing. I had written a couple of well, first of all, I had kept a diary since I was 10, a journal. So I had a lot of 
things to go back to, to, to read. And I'd written, I'd written maybe an essay or two about a couple of different things in my life. And so I could expand upon those. Mm. So it took that long. And then I put it down for six months because as you'll read in the book, at some point in the writing, I found out that I had a sister I never knew about. And it wasn't because of a DNA test that I found out. I will not spoil it. Um, you have to read right. the book to find out. <laughs> but that wreaked a lot of havoc, havoc in my family. So I had to put it down and, and not do any writing because it was just crazy for a little bit. Wow. We talked about like your biggest challenge. I'm curious to hear your biggest learning yourself through writing this book. Mm. So many things that I learned, but one of the things that I, I was very surprised at was that I hadn't looked at my journals that I had started, you know, that I'd kept since I was 10 years old for a few years. And when I started writing this book, I thought, am I over dramatizing what happened to me? Am I making a bigger scene of it? Am I, you know, plumping up some of the details because I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to fictionalize. I didn't want to overstate. And when I read the journals, it was just so hard. It was so hard to read because what I found out is that in fact, with time, I had basically suppressed some of the, um, the details of what happened through my life. And maybe it was a coping mechanism, but my experience was actually worse than my memory. So, you know, your brain takes care of you. Yeah. So I learned yeah. that. And then I learned an incredible amount about the publishing industry, which is so archaic and so backwards and so slow. And, and um, as an entrepreneur, I'm like, I need to fix that. So yeah. I'm going to be teaching people how to write publish and market their books uh, because I really see a white space and open space for that. And I'm also, I've started my own imprint called Poignant Press. Huh. Wow. So you've had through writing this book and getting this experience, you formed it into something else. So it's kind of been like a journey itself, writing the yep. book and leading you on to the next thing. Wow. I certainly didn't start out writing this book saying, Hey, I'm going to make a whole business, a whole new business, whole different business than my core business while writing this book. Like it never yeah. occurred to me, but as I did a lot of the research for the book and for the publishing and for the marketing, I realized that it, it was a, well, first of all, I'm really interested in it and very passionate mm -hmm. about it, but there was a white space. There's an open, you know, there's, there's so much change that needs to happen in the industry. Now, am I going to be the change for the entire industry? No, but I'll be part of the wave of change. That's good. It's really for me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's very interesting to hear how the, the writing of the book opened these opportunities. Cause I was talking let's see, about two podcast episodes-ish ago about uh, Open Your Eyes. And I was talking about the opportunities that we miss in life because 
one opportunity that you take can forever change your life or whether it make a micro difference or a macro difference, a huge long-term difference, like taking on this podcast for me, uh, let's see, I've been doing it for a year and two months now. It's opened my networking opportunity. And I always say it uh, all the time. I've made zero, zero. And I've spent money on equipment myself. I'm in college. So like it, it wasn't the best, uh, NOI um, net operating income, so to say, but in the terms of investment, it's returned tenfold to me with the network and people I've met, like great people like you and the stories are awesome. So it's always cool to hear uh, and just to reestablish that these opportunities that you take can open doors that you didn't even realize that were going to be opened uh, throughout it. Um, What advice do you have for the audience trying to become relentless through your book? So I was very disciplined um, as a classically trained violinist. Now, I did want to have fun and I was like chasing boys around like nobody's business. (laughs) But my priority was making sure that I was prepared for my violin lessons with my college professor at Drake University when I was in junior high. That was a lot of pressure. So instead of not practicing and not being ready, I would not necessarily spend the night at a friend's house or go out with, you know, whatever. So I don't look at it as things that I gave up. Um, I look at it as I instead invested that time and energy into what I really wanted to do. And so I think making sure that you're spending your time and your energy and your resources that is not just feel good and fun, but really investing in what you want to achieve in your future. I think that's that, that really separates people from the yeah. people that are really doing something in the world and the people that really would like to, but they just mm-hmm. aren't or haven't been able to yet. I think it's all about the choices that they make. Yeah, absolutely. And then going back for a second, you talked about journaling and then rereading the journals that you wrote. Do you still journal to to this day to day? Not as much. You know, I realized, and this may be similar to most humans. I journaled a lot when things were going bad. Mm -hmm. So it was a great cathartic way to get my feelings and emotions down and out of my head. And when things are going great, it's a little harder to, um, to put down on paper or now typing. So mm-hmm. yeah, the answer is no, I don't. Mm. Interesting. Cause I I've done, I've started to pick up journaling. I wouldn't say it's to the extent of like writing pa- multiple paragraphs a day. It's like five things I'm grateful for. And then three major goals I have for the day. And that's like my journal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's wonderful. that's, yeah, that's just something that's little that I've oriented, um, journal and, mm-hmm. um, you know, being grateful is a wonderful way to be in the moment and remembering that along the journey of trying to get to where you're at, you're actually living the dream of that mm-hmm. journey. Yeah, a hundred percent. And um, it could be during the time period of you writing the book or throughout your whole life. What is maybe a vague moment, some of the best advice you've heard throughout your uh, journey? It could be book when you were writing the book or beforehand. 
the overall advice, something that's stuck with you throughout the years? Think bigger, think bigger, think bigger, think bigger. bigger. At one point I was saying that I'd like to sell 25,000 books minimum. And Jack Canfield from Chicken Soup for the Soul, which is a billion dollar franchise now, Mm -hmm. said 25,000, like, won't it be funny when you're talking to me in a year and you've sold over a million. And then just yesterday, someone that I was on a podcast with said, you know, your goals are actually your limiting beliefs. So when I've Mm. changed that goal to a 1 million, then I am limiting my potential from doing more than a million. Now I might, but if I'm believing that I'm going to do three or five or 10 or 20, what he said was interesting. Cause I was like, well, then I'm not going to say anything, right? I'm not mm-hmm. going to put a goal down. Cause I don't want to be limited. I don't think that's quite what he meant. Yeah. That's very interesting because throughout, I mean, everyone's voices in the background of my life. Like I've heard like set realistic goals set. Okay. Set have like a little bit above. And then someone's like, shoot for the stars. Like it, there's so much advice that I've heard from different people, but it seems like with what you're saying, like when you shoot higher and even if you miss, you know, that big goal, you still get way more than when you are limiting to yourself to this. And then it's like, okay, I got, uh, 25,000 sold. So yeah. what now? Like my, my goal's right. been and met. Not just think big, but think outside of your comfort zone because mm. my big may not be the big of somebody else. My big, my 1 million books for someone like Tony Robbins. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a pretty formidable number, but um, you know, he'll be like, yeah, of course, 1 million, that is my minimum. Right. Yeah. So think outside of your own experience and your own mindset is more of what I wanted to convey. Yeah, absolutely. And I was curious because when I was looking at your LinkedIn, so how did you originally start your business and your company? Uh, Because I've seen it's been, was it like 15 or like 20-ish years you've been doing it? 20, okay. You know, it all came out, it all came to me Um, the business because I was playing gigs as a violinist with my string quartet and as a vocalist in my jazz ensemble. And I was too busy to take on, like if I was booked for a Friday night and someone called me for that same Friday night, I wouldn't turn them down. Most musicians would. Instead, Mm -hmm. I said, I'm booked, but I can bring in a group that's just as good as I am and maybe even better and manage them for you. And they were relieved because, Hmm. you know, They just wanted to have a great experience, great music. Did they need and have to have me, Natasha Miller? I mean, they might've, but um, (laughs) they didn't get it. So, and then I just started building slowly, you know, and then in 2001, I officially opened entire productions. And one of my biggest clients I landed that year was a hundred thousand dollar client, which was huge for me Mm -hmm. back then. They're still my client today, 20, almost 21 years later. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. What's one of the biggest artists or bands that you're, do you focus like primarily on jazz or is it a little bit? No, 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 not anymore. We used to. That first couple of years was jazz and classical. It was what I knew, but Mm -hmm. now we do everything 
everything from headliners to local talent, every genre, every discipline, dancers, aerialists. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. It's yeah. If you look at the entire productions website, your head would spin the events that we're okay. able to do with the great artists. is just, yeah. Over the top. What's one of the uh, most appreciated moments? Like uh, maybe it was the um, $100,000 client when you first landed that client, but what was yeah. like one thing throughout the, um, of you building the company that you were like, wow, this is awesome. I think making the first year of the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing companies in America, mm. that was a very, you know, amazing moment. And then I went on to do it the next year and then the next year. So three times on that list really showed the discipline, the focus, the growth and scaling that I was able to do. So I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy that you've like, just your whole journey just blows me away. And uh, when we started emailing each other and I like looked more into the book and everything, and I'm like, wow, the, really you reach for the stars and you're like, just keep on going and going and going. Uh, what are potentially some plans in the future uh, or whatever it may be for the company itself? Like, do you have planned? For entire productions, we're going to be scaling and growing per usual. We had, um, you know, a big hiccup in the name of COVID where mm -hmm. we had to switch to virtual events. But then on the other side with my book, um, I'll be doing some speaking, some teaching, mm -hmm. of, you know, people how to write, publish and market their books. Uh, I would like to publish other authors' books on my imprint. So that's just a can of worms you just opened because I have lots of things that are uh, mm -hmm. firing up. Wow. And I'm, I'm curious with your... Um... I guess your personal life, so to say, like, what's your routine? Because it seems like, you know, you're running this company, you're writing a book, you are super busy. You have like, you have to be productive and efficient, efficient mm -hmm. in every day. What is a, a normal schedule? And I know normal, it's like, no, everything's vastly different. Listen, I have an excuse. I am not in a relationship now. And my daughter is 26. I live mm -hmm. by myself. So I basically get to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. And I don't have any other commitments. And yeah. that's why I'm able to, to really tackle all these things. I also have an incredible team of people. And when it gets to the part point where people are bottlenecked or there's, you know, I just hire someone else. So I'm at yeah. that. I have the access to be able to do that. So I don't want anyone to be thinking, oh my God, why aren't I doing as much as she is? You're your um, situation could be completely different than mine. Mm -hmm. How do you take on like each day? Is there like um, in the sense of like you write everything you have to do down and then kind of prioritize? So how does that look like? How do you? Yes, I have my calendar uh, for appointments and, and calls and interviews and such. But I do have on a in a book, a list of, you know, to do's. But I also know when my sweet spot is of when I can do my best work. Mm -hmm. So I wake up at about seven. I don't really take calls or doing anything of great value until about nine or 10. And then I'm my best self between 10 and three. And then mm -hmm. things started, start of, you know, start kind of winding down then. And I might take 20 to 30 minutes and like lay down or sit down or do something that's not work to re-energize 
for the next couple hours, but then, then that's it. And I get plenty of sleep at least eight hours a day. Um, I think boasting about not sleeping much is ridiculous. My personal opinion, it's not healthy. And a lot of entrepreneurs try to, Oh, I only need one hour of sleep or I, I only get four hours of sleep. Well, that is not, that's not responsible to you, Mm -hmm. to anybody else either, because when you have that little sleep, at some point it catches up with you and it's almost like you're drunk, right? Mm-hmm. It keeps you from being able to function correctly. So I'd like to wipe that out of any entrepreneurs or any person's vocabulary that they think that that is a strength. Yeah. I, you know, it's, I love that you brought up the sleeping because I was always orientated, uh, from the people like the hardcore entrepreneurs, like, uh, Elon Musk and other people are like, Oh, I get five, six hours, uh, at max of sleep. And I'm like, okay, so that's what I need to do in order to be this. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, it was the wrongful thinking. And then, uh, I eventually outlier, he may Mm -hmm. be able to do that. You know, he's, I don't know much about people on the spectrum and, and it's been, you know, talked about that he's on Mm -hmm. the spectrum. There are other things that might contribute to someone not being able to sleep, but holding that out as something you're proud of is not healthy in my opinion. And I get, I get way more done than a lot of people. Yeah. And I get plenty of sleep. Yeah. That, that, that's what I, I had a podcast episode over that Uh, power of sleep is what it was called. And because I watched this documentary and these doctors were doing uh, research and development on uh, people sleeping and then people being deprived of sleep. And it's like crucial for you to give your body the sleep. And I liked one of their, um, they compared it to a situation. They're like, your body is like a farmland. And after the crop has grown throughout the, basically your day and you've done, you've done your energy, it needs rest. So when the crop is uh, completely taken out and uh, harvested that it needs to settle. Farmers don't immediately replace it because the nutrients has to build. And they were, the doctors were talking about literally that's your body in the sense of what we're comparing to. So it was very interesting to hear your aspect on that. And I think, like you said, it just gets over said so much and it's like, you don't need sleep and all this stuff. You're getting five, four or five hours of sleep if you really want to get it. So it's really good. I don't actually respect people. I really don't that say that thing, say that Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder if they're boasting about that to make up for the lack of actual, you know, Mm -hmm. proof of concept, proof of work, proof of success. Yeah. I, I, it kills your body. Literally. That's what the doctors were talking about. It's like, I forget, they said a pack of cigarettes. Uh, it's like smoking a pack of cigarettes, uh, once you even get older. And I was like, what it's that bad for your health. Uh, I didn't even realize it. And then after that, it was seven to eight hours of sleep every (laughs) single day. I I don't, uh, usually get any less, uh, or anything, uh, less than that. Um, I guess a question I always ask guests, do you have, besides your book, uh, because I'll definitely be leaving that in the description for all the listeners out there to check out Relentless, uh, do you have any book recommendations uh, that have really stood out uh, that you've read? In Well, many. So are we talking about in business and entrepreneurship in general? Give fiction? me the list. 
I'll take oh whatever you give me. See, I, I have trouble too. I, I have a library of probably 200, 250 books. So I'm like, and all are vastly different. They're business, there's fiction. Yes. I mean, I love fiction. So we'll just skip that because at this point, you know, we're talking about business and entrepreneurship. The mm-hmm. three books that stand out in my mind, actually I have them right here. Are, are you ready? Yep, I am ready. Who? By Jeff Smart. This is about how to hire um, oh. any entrepreneur running a business will say their number one problem is the people that because mm-hmm. human beings are challenging. I'm challenging how to sell at margins higher than than your competitors by Lawrence Steinmetz and William T. Brooks. This will bore you to tears, but it's wonderful about the <laughs> psychology of um, how to sell. And it really has to do with your background, the owner of the business, how you buy, what kind of a consumer are you? That's how you price and you have to get over yourself. And then here's another one. This is EOS Traction by Gina Wickman. And it's basically an operating system for your business. The other um, operating system that this is kind of a takeoff on is Scaling Up by Vern Harnish. And um, I just appreciate EOS uh, for my business. So that's, that's what I have to give you, to you. Have you read Atomic Habits? Oh my gosh, I haven't. But every single person I meet is talking about that in the last two months. So clearly I need to. Yeah, I, I read it and I actually did a, 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 a lot of my outside of having guests on majority, I would say is summarizing books within the 15 to 30 minute range, giving the main points and atomic habits was one of the ones I I gave that was like one of I think one of my best reads this year, think like a monk was also a really good one as well by Jay Shetty. I think that was one of my top. Yeah, Jay, I I love Jay. Um, Yeah. And Napoleon Hill was one of my favorite authors. Um, as well. And Thomas Stanley, he talks about like millionaires and uh, what really m- millionaires really are and what people that want to look like millionaires are and what their bank mm-hmm. account and everything looks like. So it's very interesting in the comparison economics behind it. Mm-hmm. But um, as we are closing this episode, any last words of wisdom you have for the audience? I mean, we kind of touched on it. I'll just sum it up is you can do it for yourself. You need to be disciplined and laser focused and you have to be relentless. Awesome. And I I love how the book relentless meets with the relentless college entrepreneur. That's just such a cool thing. Pretty cool. Thank you again for coming on this podcast. I really appreciate it. And, um, to for the audience we'll be having more guests on soon and uh, i'll be seeing you next episode okay this has been the relentless college entrepreneur podcast catch you guys next time